We've done it. We've returned. It's Monday night. We've got our live stream going on. This is Inside Texas, uh, sponsored by InsideTexas.com. We've got our uh, traditional band of reprobates. We've got Ian. We've got Eric. We've got Paul and myself. We're going to go over a bunch of your questions today. Uh, so please get those in as soon as you can. We've got a couple coming in already. We've got a few on the board. And it looks like it looks like based on based on the discussions we had prior to starting this thing, that's something we do. We do chat behind your back. I think it's only I think it's only fair that we tell you that. And we were talking a lot about primarily the fact that Sark got a brand new contract. So Sark's a, a well-paid individual now, not that he wasn't before. But this really sparked the question that Paul had. Uh, where, where does Sark rank in the SEC? And I guess another way of framing that question is, you've got Sark. Is there a coach in the league that you would take over him? And that's really a, an open question to everybody here. We can start with you, Paul. Wow, putting me on the spot right off. I thought we we're gonna talk about rankings and stuff, but no, nope, no, nope, nope. Who are you taking over Sark? Here's the takeaway: I want to fire Steve Sarkeesian. I think he's. <laughs> that's my takeaway from no, no. I, I think there's only one. It's Kirby Smart. Sure. And uh, some, I think people might say, well, he fits the ecosystem at Georgia. I, I think what he's done at Georgia is transferable anywhere. I think he's sort of with Nick Saban retiring. I think he sits alone and I don't really look at it as like a, a ranking, like, you know, we're, we're not doing a, what are these different social media sites that go bankrupt periodically and they're like Gawker top 11 hottest, blah, blah, blah. And then they rank them all. I don't think that's a useful way, but if you look at tiers, I think the one tier has one name. It's Kirby smart. Right. And then I think Steve Sarkeesian is in the next tier, which is a group of probably three or four coaches but I'm kind of interested what the rest of the panel thinks of that. Yeah, where are you putting – who are you matching that up with, Eric? Well, you have to go with Brian Kelly, given the success he's had pretty much everywhere he's been. Uh, you know, I would <clears> – <throat> honestly, you have to have him above Sark if you're going by what they've accomplished. That's not even close. Uh, but, you know, I don't. I think uh, Kirby Smart's a great coach, but I wonder if Kirby would be great at Texas if they didn't have the buy-in that, that, that Texas currently has without the, uh, the whole apparatus, the – the president, the the chairman of the board, without those two, you know, Kirby Smart would have struggled. Uh, he, he benefited mightily from the Cold War that Georgia had uh, with Alabama. Uh, Alabama and Georgia kind of raised the ante for going after recruits. Uh, and then Georgia eventually started winning over a lot of recruits that Alabama would normally get. And that's kind of what really propelled him to success outside of, you know, his uh, uh, tutelage under, under Saban. Uh, I think, you know, Texas didn't have buy-in for a long time. Now they have it. Uh, but I think Sark is perfect for Texas. But Brian Kelly would be number two after Kirby Smart, I think. Uh, I'm trying to think who would be four uh, after Sark. Got to go Sark three. You know, I wonder if Kelly almost deserves to be with Smart. Um, well, I guess we'll see in these next three years at LSU if he can match what Smart did at Georgia. Because this will be the first time he's had comparable resources like he, what he did at Notre Dame was pretty great, and he did that with without Georgia, you know, resources basically. If you look at like the next year after that, it's mostly like offensive wonderkins, right? It's Lane Kiffin, it's Hugh Freeze, Heupel. it's Heupel, it's Sark. Um, Napier was supposed to be more of a overall program guy, and his overall program at Florida has been not very good. 
Mark Stoops is like that as well. And then Elko, you know, we'll see. Elko is like the the flip side, the defensive guy to match up against all these uh, new hot shot offensive guys. We've already skipped an important guy who probably is probably on the same footing as Sark in terms of what he's proven and sort of his background. Kalen DeBoer. Oh, sorry. Yep. My bad. Yeah. So if you're looking at tier two, I would actually have Sark and Kalen DeBoer in there with Brian Kelly. Uh, But I think for the, for the proven sort of time tested reasons, I think Kelly is, is sort of, probably the next guy, right? He's above those two. But DeBoer's track record is is pretty incredible. If you, if you right. look at what he's done, no matter where he's gone, he's been amazing. And look, no one had, you know, Washington has a, a kind of a proud program history for a lot of people who don't understand follow back football. But if you opened up all the college football jobs, there's not a bunch of coaches rushing to draft Washington in their top 10, much less their top 20. So I think he deserves a lot of respect. The question for him is going to be one of fit at Alabama. And then I think losing Ryan Grubbs is not inconsequential. I think, I think that was his right-hand man. I think that's a big deal. Uh, I think DeBoer is the special sauce and all that. But, man, Ryan Grubbs, was a, he was a trusted lieutenant that DeBoer could really outsource a lot of the offense to, and DeBoer could focus on program building. So it's interesting. Kelly can fit at LSU. I'm sorry. If Kelly can fit at LSU. You got to think Kalen DeBoer can make it in in Tuscaloosa. That's a fair I mean, point. He's, yeah. he could start faking a Louisiana accent the way Brian Kelly does. That would be awesome. Uh, I always enjoy that. Um, he's, he's basically like if Kelly had had two good years at Notre Dame, gone to the playoffs. Like if Kelly had left Notre Dame after the Manti Teo season, right? That's basically DeBoer's track record to date. Like Kelly built Notre Dame up more than DeBoer built up Washington. I mean, DeBoer did an excellent job at Washington. I'm a, I'm a fan of the program, but uh, you know he inherited a lot of uh, good 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 players as well. That's true. I think inherited a bigger mess. Though it is easier to build at Notre Dame, you just have, it has a lower ceiling than a lot of schools, which is why I took LSU. Hey, I, I want to hop a... over. Go oh, ahead, I'm really. sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go for it. Uh. I just I thought it was good that Ian mentioned Hugh Freeze with Lane Kiffin because I think in terms of hilariousness and entertainment, Lane Kiffin's near the top. He's also a great offensive mind. I I don't think he's a better coach than Hugh Freeze, and I think the average person probably thinks that. Uh, Hugh Freeze is capable of very high highs as as a coach. Uh, if you give him enough time pre- to prepare for someone, he can beat anybody. And I think Texas will learn that maybe the hard way one season when, when we start playing Auburn. But he's also capable of the lowest lows because in terms of over-prepping for that one opponent, you know, the Bamas, he's going to go lose to South Carolina, right? He's right. going to go – he's going to get upset by Vanderbilt. And, you know, that's that maddening thing about him. But, you know, Lane Kiffin has, has done a good job at Ole Miss. I think the thing that's missing for him is that – when they play the big boys, you know what's going to happen. And right. I think until he can break that and have a breakthrough, uh, I think he's going to always be more considered, you know, respected coach who's also just – he offers a great deal of entertainment value. Well, another thing that, that Auburn has, though, is sort of that institutional uh, 
uh, ability that wants you to, to fight with Alabama that, that Georgia has. You know, that's that. Yeah. You know, that's how they come out of the ashes every five or six years and have, you know, a borderline great season or compete for the national championship or win a national championship. They've got institutional buy-in to a high degree. A lot of that driven by, you know, a, a fanatical, uh, you know, stance against Alabama. You know, it's basically well, Auburn. Auburn has proven right. at least twice the same program. Right. That even before NIL, when actually there was cheating in college football, it pays to cheat. It, it, you know, it pays. You you will play for a national title if you're sufficiently dedicated to it. And then, yeah, your program blows up, but then you just rebuild and you do it again. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting program. I want to throw it out to our uh, super chat. Brett Nelson is coming in hot. We really appreciate you doing that, Brett. Uh, if you want to have your question answered, we're going to try to get to as many of these as we can tonight. But if you want to guarantee your spot in there, please throw us in a super chat. Brett is asking... Do you expect a more all-gas-no-breaks mentality this year in an attempt to get Arch as many snaps as possible? That is to say, are we just going to blow folks out in the first first half so we can get Arch in? What are your thoughts on that? I'll take that over to you, Ian. We've we've kind of had discussions like this in the past. I, I kind of think that they would have liked to have done that this year. Um, not Maybe not for Arch's sake, but just for the overall program's sake. And they were unable so uh, I don't know. I, I, I bet the will is there. We'll see if they can, you know, pull it off or not. That's it, huh? <laughs> That's well, good. I, mean, I, I haven't tough. thought on that. I, I honestly, I don't think the coaches think in those terms. I just, I think they go out and they're, they're going to, and yeah, this is such coach speak. They're just trying to win the game. And they're, you know, if it's a bad opponent, they're trying to play against to a certain standard. And if that means by playing to that standard, Arch Manning gets in in the early third quarter and he can actually throw the ball, right? That's helpful. Um, right. We're not going to alter how we're not going to play harder because we want to get Arch Manning in the game. We're not going to, I just, I don't think that's how it works. And I, I think. The interesting question, and Brett, thank you for the question and for the super chat. You're always a guy every week who comes through uh, with really good questions and super chats. Uh, I would say the more intriguing question is, is there something to getting Arch Manning in just a series? Uh, you know, I think Quinn won't wouldn't feel threatened by that. I think what we're trying to do is basically say, hey, we're just trying to develop the quarterback position because you're leaving after this year, Quinn. And also, you know, you missed two games last year. Uh, is there value in that? And, you know, or do you think that's even a game we don't want to play because of media nonsense and all that? What do you, what do you guys think? Well, I like that Sark in the last press conference he had, he just flat out said he nipped that in the bud that, that Arch is the starting quarterback. So, I mean, that's, that would carry a lot of weight with Arch, uh, or that Quinn is the starting quarterback. I'm sure that. Well, kid breaking will- news here. Yes, <laughs> we got to get these live chats up, man. We got to get more viewers. <laughs> so, uh, just throw that in there, little nugget. Um, but yes, yeah, uh, you know, Quinn knows he's the starter. Uh, I don't think he's going to be threatened, and, and I, I do think that he he kind of sees the bigger picture, and he also knows that you know Arch is Arch is being a team player. He you know a lot of quarterbacks would have raised the fuss uh, with the almost uh, implied agreement that Ar- uh, Quinn would be gone after the first year. Uh, so Arch is being a team player too. I don't think Quinn would have any problem reciprocating that with uh, with the full confidence that he is a starter. Texas also has four non-conference games next year. Right. At the very beginning. So that's a lot of opportunities to uh, 
pump up the score and get Arch in early before the SEC games. Because, yeah, I mean, ideally, right, you'd like to get Arch's feet wetter before those SEC games so that if Quinn separates his shoulder for the third straight year, uh, Arch has played more recently. We got another question here from Justin Yarbrough, who is asking, specifically for you, Eric, how would you compare the 24 recruiting class to the 25 class? And with Nick Saban retired, how much does Texas benefit specifically from that? Well, I mean, if you're, if you're comparing talent, uh, in-state talent, 25 is much better. It's just a lot better at the top where Texas is going to feast and they're not going to reach towards the, you know, depth in a depth in a class matters more to Oklahoma state matters more to TCU, uh, Texas tech schools like that. Texas is going to pick from the top. So you want, uh, you want you want the star power at the top, which which has in this cycle. I think UT is going to do quite well. Twenty five is just a much better class overall. Um, at a lot of positions that are normally bleak with talent are are loaded. Defensive tackle is one. There's a lot of linebackers. Usually linebackers are difficult to find. They might still be difficult to find, but at least there's a lot of options in in this cycle. Uh, you know, wide receivers are always there. It's just a good class. Well, you know, when Nick Saban retired, you know, Texas should do a lot better in East Texas. <laughs> you know, he's He's kind of eaten Texas's lunch uh, in, in that part of the state in the, in the last few cycles. Uh, you know, losing Aaron Hampton last year didn't really bother Texas. They didn't feel like participating in that one all the way through. But uh, in years past, he's, he's taken some guys that really could have helped Texas. Jalen Hale, uh, running back, uh, Jerry, uh, Jamari and Miller. Um, you know, this year he got a, a Cole, uh, Casey Poe, uh, the center. Texas didn't go after him, but that guy's got a chance to be a good starter. Um, but yeah, overall, I mean, the, the class is loaded, but Texas is going to be selective and at times probably overly patient um, for as far as UT's recruiting in this cycle. It hasn't really taken on its personality yet. That's something that we're covering a lot pretty much daily. I wrote today that UT's most likely class, uh, volume one, which is going to look really silly come October, or November, uh, but it's just a snapshot of where they are right now. So that's a good article to read if you're on Inside Texas for sure. Hey, Eric, I'm, I'm interested uh, Texas will benefit, obviously, from Saban leaving, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't think we're the number one beneficiary. Is is it the oh. schools that leap to mind for me would be like Auburn, Auburn. Georgia, uh, maybe Florida State, Rutgers, yeah. Ole Miss, Ole Miss, Florida State. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Florida, Florida State doesn't do a great job recruiting high school. Uh, that's kind of a, an issue that they have with uh, with the coach there. Uh, what's his name? Braids. Um, you know, he's kind of he's a well, squirrely guy. Yeah, he's a squirrely guy. Uh, he, if you talk to um, uh, what's his Bud, uh, Bud, I'm drawing a blank on all these names. Bud Elliott. Yeah, Bud Elliott. He's got a lot of interesting takes on him, and they're accurate. He knows a lot more about Florida State, but the little I've heard, uh, checked out with with uh, him being a kind of a weirdo. Uh, I think uh, I think Ole Miss is a big one because you know they they're fighting for the bigs all the time with uh, with Alabama. And if you and if you pick up one big guy that you wouldn't get otherwise, that's huge, uh, especially if you do it a couple years in a row. Uh, you know, so, yeah, Ole Miss, Auburn is the obvious one. I think Georgia as well. Um, and LSU probably. You know, all those schools that are the closest in proximity are going to benefit the most. You know, a huge beneficiary that doesn't leap to mind, but uh, as I think about it, I'll, let me throw this out to you guys. Ohio State. Sure. They, yeah. Because they, they do the national recruiting thing, obviously. Yeah. They're always going down to Georgia. And I, I feel like – Alabama was their number one competitor sort of for the elite wide receivers that both would have targeted. So well, the one outsider that recruits the Southeast the best for sure. Without yeah. a doubt, they, they can go in and get speed and size and athleticism. They go in and get NFL guys and Texas hasn't, hasn't quite gotten to that point. They can, they can pull an outlier every once in a while. 
but not like not like Ohio State. Yeah, they'll benefit. Uh, but yeah, you know, LSU, Auburn come to mind. Georgia to to a degree. Georgia's going to win their share regardless of Nick Saban's there or not. We've got a question from the board. And of all the postseason coaching and staff losses, which one likely hurts the most and why? Of all, how many how many were there? Glasscock and Bo Davis? I I Bo Dwayne Aquino, maybe. Dwayne Aquino. <laughs> Fair enough. For about I mean, 20 seconds. They've gone, they've gone, they obviously wanted to get they've had they've gone through two analysts so far bring into the secondary and both the guys they brought in first Dwayne Aquina, then William Gay, the longtime Pittsburgh Steeler. I kind of wonder if they want somebody in that understands single high coverage really well so they can boost that side of uh, the defense. And um, Aquina would have done that. Gay presumably would have done that with all of his NFL experience. They lost both of them. I don't know where they're going to go to next. But I really think it, it seemed like Akina may have had like a Patterson level influence at Texas if he had come, where he's like the head honcho uh, providing like vision and oversight for how they coach up the secondary. And uh, so when they didn't get him in, I mean, we'll see, we'll see what, we'll see what they end up doing. Maybe they get somebody better. I don't know, but that could have had a major impact and it will not happen. What this is the question to do primarily with Oklahoma. What I'll start with you here on, on this one, Eric. How do you, gosh, what do you attribute Oklahoma's momentum to in recruiting? I mean, do you even see it as being momentous? Yeah, I mean, they're doing great. They they are they're extremely energetic, um, extremely aggressive, and that you know that's going to pay off with certain kids. It's also going to rub rub some kids the wrong way. Uh, but they're just being very aggressive. They're very enthusiastic. They recruit in mass. You know, they'll send four or five guys to the same school. Um, and that, that's just it. It's energy and effort. I don't think that they're doing any. They're not reinventing the wheel or anything. They haven't. Um, they've, they've had they've had success on the field, uh, probably to a larger degree uh, than I would have thought, than many would have thought. Uh, Ian Boyd, even as well, maybe especially. Uh, they haven't quite cratered like we would have thought. Um but yeah, it's, it's energy and, and effort. You know, Texas is doing it, but they're not pushing for commits right now. Texas doesn't want – Texas could have five, six more guys right now, and, and fans would be happy, um, but it wouldn't matter. I, I can remember fans being extremely excited about Mac Brown's final class in 2014, and it was the worst guys that has ever been committed to Texas. And fans were excited. I would go on another site and see, like, their dancing banana emojis that would celebrate when they would get, like, a 6'2", 280-pound offensive lineman that, that was only going to play guard. Um, Texas can fill up. They don't, you know, they don't want to right now. So they're going to take their time and, and follow their process. And in the end, fans are going to be happy with it. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not going to have some losses. There are always going to be some losses. Everybody else is recruiting hard too. But yeah, Oklahoma has a very enthusiastic, energetic, uh, and aggressive uh, recruiting staff, and they're going to get some more guys. Yeah, when you going. when you say being aggressive, are you specifically talking about pushing for commitments? Yes. Yeah, right. asking for the commitment. You got to make the ask at some point. Um, and Texas is more likely to tell a guy to take take their time. Um, you know, they turned down one uh, high-level guy that they thought wasn't going to handle the process with as much maturity as they would have liked, and it would have become a roller coaster, and they, they, they elected not to get on that roller coaster at this time. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not going to keep recruiting him. They are recruiting him. Uh, but, you know, they don't want to – you don't want to – you don't want to waste a bunch of time on one guy. Uh, and if it's going to take you 10 months to keep him committed, you'd rather get him committed at the very end. Right. This is a question for Ian, and it's specifically to do with 
the uh, the D backs. So if if we get communication going, there's more alignment between our linebackers and our D backs. Are you seeing a massive improvement over last year in terms of the overall defense? I don't know if back end communication was a huge problem this last year. Well, I, I mean, it, I, probably maybe y'all can come up with some examples where that burn Texas, but I felt like the number of busts and assignment errors was actually down from 2022. Um, they just, they had some, I don't know. They had some bad calls that got beat in some games. They had some deficient play at positions where it wasn't, some guy didn't know what to do. It was some guy couldn't make a tackle. Um, I guess against Oklahoma, I'm, I'm recalling a couple busts that were pretty substantial down the stretch, but I don't know. I, that would help a lot. Um, I think that Texas should count on having good communication next year because they have all these veterans back. Barron is back. Taff is back. Makuba, you would think, would be a good veteran presence back there and a good communicator. Um, Benda's back at linebacker. I, they could have issues there if they're not careful. If, if they ask a lot of Hill, he's going to have to be really vocal and on the, on the nose with the calls. But um, so I don't, I don't want to downplay the importance of that, but there's probably some other factors that are going to be bigger in Texas matching what they did last year. Like, um, you know, Alfred Collins making another leap would probably be a bigger factor based on what I'm expecting of, I, I don't think it'll be a, a huge problem no matter what. So Collins making a leap, um, maybe some of the younger cornerbacks making a leap, maybe changing up the coverage or pressure package a little bit could make a big difference. There's a lot of different touch points for the defense that could change next year. Paul, I wanted to take this to you. This is based on a little bit of, your article that you posted. And I don't obviously want you to go through the whole thing. I want people to check it out. It's only a dollar right now. Go ahead and check out InsideTexas.com. You get that first month for a dollar. It's, I mean, honestly, it's the best deal you can get when it comes to the level of insight you're getting from Inside Texas. But you wrote specifically about the concept of what can change over a year. And I think this question is a really good lead into that. You know, we have these impressions on all these things that are going to happen in the next year. And often we're generally not that accurate about that. I'd love for you to expand on that for us. Yeah, we're, we're not great predictors of the future, typically. And a lot of that has to do with the development of 20-year-old football players. And there is a mindset broadly in sports, but really Texas fans have because of our failure to, to develop over the last decade plus uh, until recently that a guy is a guy and he, he's always the same guy. And that's just not the case. And my article and you guys could, should go read it is basically laying out all the evidence of at this time last year, here was our perception of the following players. And I just go through them and Every single, almost every single one of those players not only improved, but improved dramatically. And this is in Sark's, you know, third season as head coach. So we have fallen into this notion that a guy is just sort of that guy. And you see him as a redshirt freshman 
and he just sort of plateaus and he's that way all the way through his senior year. And sometimes that was the case. And frankly, that's why Texas football had been pretty mediocre until last year's breakout uh, for a while. And the reason we're breaking out of that and the sign of a great program and not just a good team is that you don't just have a compilation of talent where it hits one year and you graduate eight dudes to the NFL and you become TCU and you're, you're not even a bowl team the next year after playing for the national title. If Texas is a real program now, and we're starting to think that they are, you, sh- you wish all those guys good luck that leave and you replace them with a bunch of guys who've improved and developed and have been sitting waiting for their opportunity. And that's what good programs do. And uh, Can you give us a, an example? I know, obviously, we don't want to go too in-depth because the, the article is very good. What What's one example that's easy to hit on and says, like, wow, we did not anticipate this guy to be anything, and now look at him? Well, so this time last year, Byron Murphy <clears throat> was welcomed. It was, it was glad. We were all glad he was returning because we thought he had a chance of being a good starter and a fifth-round NFL draft pick. Right. You know, that was that was the mind that was the perception in February of last year. If I had come out and written a post saying he's gonna be the Big 12 defensive lineman of the year, he's gonna finish second or third in the Outland voting to Tavondre Sweat, who was also a guy that we thought we already knew and he'd leveled off and he was at his plateau. Uh, and I said, you know, he's gonna be a first round draft pick, people would have said, Whoa, you know, this guy's peddling some burnt orange Kool-Aid. I guess he's trying to you know, hawk his preview to, to Texas fans. But the reality is that's what Byron Murphy turned into. So don't think of these guys as static assets. And if we really have been recruiting well, and, and also more importantly, developing, because I've always stressed recruiting is not its own world, its own thing. It's the first step in the development process to actually putting a player on the field. That's what recruiting is. Yeah. But the idea that we just sign a class and three years later they they burst onto the scene and they're all awesome, even though we haven't been coaching them, giving them good strength and conditioning, seeing to their development, making sure they don't bust or, or flunk out with nonsense. Uh, Texas is checking all those boxes as a program now. And that's why we're starting to see these guys break out when we were all kind of puzzled as to why five, seven, 10 years ago, it just wasn't happening. So many of these guys were fizzling. To your point, Paul, there's like the, there's the coaxing the guys onto the 40 acres and into the program. And then there's convincing them to be, to optimize. Yeah. They accept coaching to figure out what their strengths and weaknesses are. The same, that same relationship building. I mean, it's the same kind of skill set, but uh, people think it's all just about, you know, you're, you're not just selling a, you're not just trying to get a car off the lot. You're, you're hoping to build a relationship where people keep coming back to, to get the, all their servicing done at the dealership. Right. You know, in Japan, uh, the the hyper competitive exams and studying and the crazed lives that Japanese junior high and high school students live, it's all to get into college. And then the college you get into tells something about you, right? Because once you go to Japanese college, you screw off and you date and you have a great time. All that stuff goes away. I don't know if most people know that. Unfortunately, that was the model that Texas was using for a while, right? Which was these great high school players and they're getting to Texas and I did it. I, you know, I achieved. 
I got a scholarship to Texas. I'm having a blast. I'm on the football team. I may or may not be starting. Uh, and that's a different, we needed a mindset shift. And Sark, if you look at, you know, her, her, Strong was supposed to be that mindset set shift, right? No nonsense, you know, walk to the practice field. We're not taking a bus, whatever. Herman was supposed to be tough guy. You know, your pee's not clear. The laid back California guy, right? That's the perception of Sark. He comes in and he's the guy that's getting all these guys to buy in and maximize. Kind of interesting. Well, there's something very important before recruiting is the evaluation process and knowing who to recruit rather than just getting in all the guys with the stars. And, you know, that's why he's got a ton of rope for me when they pass on a guy that's, you know, for high four star that, that athletically looks like it can't miss. I got asked by a couple of them this week. I won't put their names out here uh, because there's plenty of time for those guys to write the ship. But, you know, there's a lot of players out there that are talented that have a lot of question marks. And Texas, Texas is looking for, for more sure things. There's, there's not a lot of sure things out there. Um, but that's why you evaluate thoroughly and you take your time. You know, you, 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 the longer you have to evaluate, the better, the better decisions you're going to end up making on who to push for. Uh, and that's why I think Sark has done a really good job at evaluating and taking the right guys, not just talented guys. Let's talk about one of those evaluations from the, the chat here. The, curious about KJ Lacey. Is he going to be one of our talesmen for the class? Is he going to lead? this in or, is, or do we see him how do we see him leading this class in terms of recruits but the talisman i think uh, geronimo has been watching a lot of english soccer that's one of their favorite words for like the, the lead scorer uh, i was wondering what the hell that meant yeah yeah so, geronimo, uh, you're a good dude i know you from the forums are you one of these guys that speaks like when you're talking about your premier league team you say they're looking fit and our play is dodgy and yeah. you slip into all these like English colloquialisms when you're trying yeah. instead of just talking about it like a proper American. Are he's you out, one of those guys, man? He's out of form. He is. <laughs> he had one bad game and the guy lost his form. And then the next game, they're, they're great. Oh, and they're up and down. They're worse than, than football. He's fans. looking well fit. <laughs> uh, KJ Lacey. I mean, you know, he, as the quarterback, um, you know, you want your quarterback to be the leader of a team. It's, it's, it's maybe a little bit more difficult when they're, you know, three states over. Uh, but, you know, the power of social media and all these camps and the ability for these guys to visit much more than they did uh, in the past, I think is going to help them have a chance to, to be that leader. But, you know, right now he's got to he's got to stay committed. You can't be a, you can't be a leader if you're not firmly committed right now. He's saying all the things behind the scenes uh, that you want to hear. You know, we re we've been reporting that uh, he was at the Atlanta Under Armour camp the other day on Sunday uh, yesterday, and he said all the right things again. So, you know, we're hearing it, what we want to hear. Uh, and then that goes back to the last point. You know, Sark probably wouldn't have taken that commitment if he thought that he was going to lose him. Now, obviously, it's going to be a dogfight. You've got Hugh Freeze there. Now you've got Kalen DeBoer. Um, so there's uh, Lane Kiffin is making a run, all these accomplished coaches. But I think, you you know, part of you has to trust Sark's relationship, that he took a kid that, that picked Texas for the right reasons and not just because of NIL and some other things. So, Right now, I think he's going to end up in the class. Once you get past the spring uh, and into summer, and, and if he gets to, to Texas June official visits and, and he's really recruiting guys in, then you can feel really good about him becoming the leader of the class. Paul, one of the things that's been in the news recently is this the schedule, right? The SEC schedule, what that's going to look like. We know what it looks like next year. We know that there's been some discussions about expanding it a little bit. Obviously, from a fan perspective, we're thinking like, wow, why wouldn't you want a nine-game nine SEC schedule? That sounds awesome. But there, there's some pushback on that. Can you expand on why there might be some pushback on that? 
Yeah, so the SEC, there's a big debate right now of whether you want to have an eight-game SEC conference schedule or a nine-game SEC conference schedule. Texas is an endorsee of the nine-game conference schedule, along with a number of the more, let's say, premier teams in the SEC. Not all of them, though. And they're getting pushback from the lower and middle-tier SEC teams, which, as LC pointed out before the show, it's most of them, you know. We, we, we have, they have this imprimatur of the SEC. We're an SEC school. And, you know, Kentucky fans chant SEC, SEC as Alabama plays in the playoff, right? As if somehow they're getting some patina of, of, of credit because they're in the same conference. And it's really important to those coaches and those administrators to get that extra non-con, that Louisiana Monroe game, that, that Western Kentucky game, that they can win. It's a guaranteed win at home because that's the difference often between a bowl and going five and seven or six and six and getting a lot of fan discord. And so fans in the off season, they all love the fact that Texas is going to Ann Arbor to play Michigan. But if Texas loses that game, rather than blowing out Louisiana Monroe 49 to three, the fans will have a very different reaction, Right. And that's what the, the tension is. And, and truly the sensible thing with these super conferences is you should be playing nine conference games. I mean, that just, it just makes sense. Right. Uh, and you create easier rotations and you get to play more of everyone, right. You get to do a true round Robin, but the pushback on this is real. And, you know, the middle class and the lower middle class of the sec really wants that fourth non-con because that's their way to bowl eligibility. That's their way to respectability. That's their way that, particularly if you're in the SEC East many years, you could, you could go at nine and three, eight and four, and you had that SEC stamp, oh, we're a, a nine-win SEC team, but truth was you're not, that very, you're not a very good football team. But you know, it's, worth, it's worth jobs and millions of dollars to coaches and ADs, and that's the incentive structure. Paul, you wonder if they're going to lose that, though, ultimately, because – couldn't the – I mean, the TV networks are going to want nine conference games, right? Yes. And the TV networks can say, you know, Vanderbilt, you don't want to play nine games? You know, I bet North Carolina or Florida State or Clemson would be willing to play nine games in the SEC. And I don't know what the process looks like for kicking these teams out, but uh, you could do that or you could just stack the court and add those teams anyway and get the votes you need. So it just seems like all the power is in the hands of the better creating a better TV product. Well, it's, it's so you know what's interesting is we haven't had instances of conferences kicking teams out, right? We'd have it. We've had instances of teams leaving conferences for better greener pastures. So that would be an interesting test case. I think there's an implied. You're sitting in the room with Tennessee, Alabama, Texas, Georgia, and they all say we want the nine schedule. And we draw all the fans and the eyes and all the money. And you're Vanderbilt, you're Mississippi State. Like, I think you just need to appreciate that you're here. Yeah. And, you know, there's an, maybe an implied threat without having to deliver one, right? It's, it's the mafia guy that walks into your store and says, really nice little store you got here. Real shame if something happened to it. And then see the a day later, one of his guys comes by and says, hey, we're, we're collecting for the, the Sons of Italy. It's $1,000 a month. 
you know, uh, yeah, I think it's a similar Im- implication in some of these relationships. But, but hey, speaking of, Florida right. State could potentially be as available as early as August of this year, or this could drag out for five more years. Who knows? But they're they and the ACC are going at it. I didn't read the briefs that they're exchanging. A lot of it's nonsense. But uh, I mean, Florida State wants out. They are not just trying to apply a little subtle pressure, you know, to get a better deal or get a larger share of the ACC revenue. Uh, Florida State wants out. So my question to you guys actually is, should the middle tier schools of the SEC want Florida State to join the SEC? Isn't that just another loss on your schedule? Of course they don't. And it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, letting them in the, 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 the coyote into the hen house, the who in the hen house, the fox, the fox in fox. the hen house. Golly, yeah. Coyote in Texas and Colorado. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And we, we even have some Fox near me. Um, but yeah, it's an, it's another person you have to battle over recruits. It gets, it gets even harder. You open up the door for, for Florida state to come in and recruit. That's a, as an example, or, or Clemson use Clemson. Does South Carolina want Clemson in the sec? There's no way they do. Uh, North Carolina and Duke, they're going to want, they're going to want in the sec, but no, you know, no other basketball schools are going to really want them in. Um, so yeah, but what is ESPN? Nobody's talking about what ESPN has to say. Maybe they control all of it, anyways. Well, but if you, I want to throw something out here because this is since 2000, 15 of the national championships, or roughly 65% of them, have been won by SEC teams. Now that you add Oklahoma and Texas, that number jumps up to 74%. So if you're looking at it from a league perspective, if I'm the league commissioner, I want to stack as many good teams in there as possible. So we can then, I'm sure, we're going to delude the money and give it to everybody make sure everybody gets their free cut or whatever but that really maximizes your potential for that money and also that that publicity that exposure so and again you you take that back and you just look at the big 10 teams and now you're including usc and you have roughly the 17 percent of the other national championships have been won in the last 23 years by those two conferences you're almost 90 percent so the the consolidation of power, there's no parity in college football. We need to we need to disabuse ourselves from that. So this these middle tier teams, I think, are really I understand why they're fighting because they want to get to that bowl game, but I I just don't know that the tide is turning in their favor if that's really what they're looking for. We wanted to, oh sorry guys, anybody want to respond to that? Well they, uh, they get off my soapbox. They should up their NIL. Because that could be that could be something that that levels the playing field if they get, you know, just a couple of donors uh, and and if they're in a better location. If if some of these other schools, if if Mississippi State had the the Texas Tech bros behind it, uh, you know, people just don't want to go to go out to Lubbock and you know, especially when they can go to Texas. But the right NIL at the right school could 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 lift somebody out of obscurity. Right. You know, I, the right. proof of that, Eric, I mean, I was a little kid when it happened, but I remember it and it was hilarious the way it occurred because they were so small time. But when SMU passed the hat yeah. and decided in the early 80s to build the Pony Express, those were legitimately talented, badass football teams. And right. SMU was just nothing. It, it, would, it, it would be like the equivalent of in modern football, of like Wake Forest, just going nuts because they have a couple of billionaire alums and they decide they want to be awesome in football. And, you know, with, through NIL, all things are possible. So I think, (laughs) I think that's the takeaway, uh, you know, of the middle class, there's always that hope, but I think LC makes a really good point. I do think the, the, 
the big victory though in that consolidation just happened and it right. was texas i mean texas was the prize all along and you know not only the school but also you you've now wrapped up the demography demography of the state of texas with texas and texas a&m and that's incredibly powerful right second most populous state all the immigration inflows within within the us combine that with florida right you've got the major school there you've got these other growing states that not huge now but they're growing like wildfire tennessee georgia i mean it's huge um, we talked about, I think a few shows ago, Georgia had a net increase of the last 10 years of 65 guys, not state of Georgia, not Georgia Bulldogs. Right. The state of Georgia had a net increase of 65 NFL players in the league, right? No other state had more than four. So Texas, the SEC are on the right part of the demography. And what they might say to a Florida state is we're good. Yeah, we've got this. We've got Florida wrapped up. You're not you're the Texas A&M to Florida in the state of Florida, the way A&M is to Texas and Texas. And, and we've kind of got this wrapped up. But, you know, it's never never seen administrators or bureaucrats to pass up paychecks, even if it messes up the product. So well, I think they're not they're not thinking about it. I think if any any additions that may that are made going forward are are with a long term view and, a, and an entire reshaping of college football in mind, not the next three or four years. Yeah, no, yeah, it, it won't that. even be the traditional conferences the way that we know them. It's going to be these weird, uh, like regional super conferences under the the auspices of a, a league, and it really depends on the the NCAA. Uh, if they misplay their hand, this this. This thing could all blow up. This could effectively become semi-pro football. SEC and Big Ten gerrymandering. You know? I mean, and, yeah. and Texas is in the right district no matter what. Yep. I want to go to the chat real quick. We need to we need to give uh, give credence to our friend Huff Tex here who did do a super chat, but I want to make sure that his question gets answered here. He wants to compare and contrast D. Moore and A. Morgan at wide receiver. Who wants to jump on this one? I'll probably take that one. That that's that's this to simplify that one. You would have uh, Decorian Moore as Xavier Worthy and Andrew Marsh as uh, Ryan Wingo. Ryan Wingo is a bigger, more physical. Now Marsh is not super big. He's only six one, about one hundred eighty five. But once he gets up to two hundred pounds, he's two hundred five pounds. He's going to be extremely powerful. He's already powerful right now. You can see him every every step he takes. You can you can see him putting power into the ground and and accelerating. Um, he's a physical wide receiver, despite not being, you know, the six, four prototype, uh, you know, very similar to Wingo in that regard. And then Decorian Moore is going to get behind the defense, no matter what they try to do, really. He's, you know, maybe not quite as fast as Xavier Worthy, but he's not far off. Maybe a little more complete receiver, in fact. Uh, but yeah, you can have more of an outside vertical threat, all a Worthy with Moore, and then a power boundary guy with Marsh. that's going to break tackles after the run and, and kind of, kind of give you running back value after the catch. Our buddy Brett Nelson is coming in again, and I want to make sure that he gets his shout out. He, over under, we have two point five in the first round picks in twenty five. What are our thoughts there? Ooh, probably probably under. You reckon it's probably, under? Probably one or two, right? I think it's going to be two. A lot. Most people are putting him at, at one, or uh, they've got a handful of guys going in the thirties to forties. Sometimes they have Mitchell sneaking in. Uh, sometimes they have Sweat sneaking in. I think it's going to be two. He's 25, though. 25. 25. Oh, 25. Oh, God. What the hell, Brett? 
Um, two. Yeah, you're gonna have Banks and Ewers probably. Ewers is probably gonna be you know drafted. I expect he's gonna have a big year, and then you know Kelvin Banks will will. It's uh, a good question. A it is a good question. So it's I think the solid floor is two, and then could you get three out of a, a exactly the premise we just talked about? Collins, call right? Jude Barron. You know, you say that, and people go, "Oh, Jude Barron got beat and blah 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 game." Well, first of all, not really, and then secondly. Yeah. Uh, is he capable of, of taking off? Um, gosh, who else? I mean, it. Uh, I think it's I think it's those three. Maybe Baron. Maybe Makuba. I don't know if he puts maybe, together five picks. I don't, in the back. I don't know if he's like Isaiah Bond. Really has a shot. Oh yeah, Isaiah Bond. Yeah, definitely. He's going to have. Would you game. be Would you be totally freaked out if Isaiah Bond had twelve hundred yards and eleven touchdowns next year? No, no not really. I, th- I think he's a more complete receiver than Worthy, so I wouldn't be surprised. I, nearly as fast. I, I wanted to say under just without even thinking because three is a lot. Yeah. If, if you think Ewers and Banks are both like 60, 40 shots of going in the first round, then and then you only need one more. I mean, there's a lot of options that could get there. I mean, Collins. Um, Banks will probably be aided by so many offensive tackles going in the first round this year, just like yours is going to be aided by all the, all the quarterbacks this, this cycle. <laughs> If Brooks made a leap, I mean, it doesn't right now it doesn't look like a first round pick, but if he, if he has an amazing year and runs like four or five, Brooks could go in the first round. So it's, it's not a bad bet, actually, to go over. I think, yeah, I don't think enough people are talking about Terrence Brooks. So it, it's it, that's a, the recency bias and, and uh, trying to talk to fans after the, the last time they saw a guy was getting beat. They don't want to hear it, but. Terrence Brooks is a is a candidate to have a very strong year, I think. Show them some sophomore Michael Huff film. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my first uh, – I was late to be on the internet as far as, you know, fandom and all that. I, rem- oh. I remember, um, you know, Mike Davis, his first two years, he had a lot of drops. And for the rest of his career, he was known as a guy that had drops. And I don't remember any drops in his last two seasons. It's just you get well, that. Small Charles, if you bring him up as one of the UT all-time great backs, they're like, oh, he's a fumbler. Yeah. Per capita, one of the least fumbles of any back in UT history. I think he just had a couple of high-profile fumbles in different games. I think one in an OU game, right? And it's uh, amazing so, what can change in a year. That's right. And Ricky Williams, by the way, fumbled all the time, but no right. one remembers him that way. So, of course, Ricky was carrying it forty-five times every week. So, like, <laughs> that's fair enough. Probably had like three broken fingers by the end of the year. That's amazing. All right, gents, we are closing in. So if you get your any more of your questions, go ahead and get those in. I'm seeing a lot of... Please tell me you're going to cut off Ian again. No, 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 no. We're not going to do I anything so. like that. <laughs> why Why would we cut off Ian? That's not I only, fair. I only jumped on this week in case you did that again. Oh, well, no, no, that's well, we, not... We talked. I have a, actually a really powerful monologue I want to deliver at the end. Okay. So this is, it, is this your St. Crispin's Day speech? Yeah. <laughs> I was actually going to read the St. Crispin's Day speech. <laughs> okay. If you, if you, you're not going to cut that off, I think. No, 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 not at all. I'm a, I'm a big advocate of fighting against the French. So anything you hey, can do. Hey, guys. <laughs> big anti-French guy, Agincourt. Uh, hey, uh, it's President's Day. Oh, hey, thanks, man. I Happy, yeah, happy President's Day, Elsie. Oh, thank no, you. No, I need... And all I need your favorite president of all time, each one of you. Oh man, you trying to get us canceled? 
Oh, dude, no. <laughs> hold on. Wait a minute. Why, why, why ben Franklin? You canceled? Ben Franklin. <laughs> great, Eric. Excellent. Eric, not a big history guy. Oh, my God. Oh. I love that you're worried about that just based on. I mean, I'm not worried about it. I'll just say somebody from the 1800s. Okay. Sure. Well, that's the easiest way to get canceled. <laughs> There's, that's the right, I'll start us off since you're cowards. Washington, dude. It's it's people try to be cool and pick someone else, and there's all sorts of we've had many great presidents. Uh Washington, talk about a man of his time for exactly the, the time we needed, and to step away when basically all everyone wanted him to be a, a king for life, uh, a leader for life, uh, to step away and say no and set the president. Uh, I think it's one of the greatest things that's ever happened in history. In fact, King George said when he was told that that Washington had done that, he said, if that's true, he's the greatest man in all of history to turn down power. Because in history, typically when you turn down or leave power, you're immediately murdered by your political rivals because you're a threat. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I'll go with Washington. Call me an old, old uh, stickler for, for tradition. Paul at the risk of being canceled. Thank you.